the December 9th Global News Review. I'm Patrick Ryan, President of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. I'm joined today by Ambassador Dick Bowers and Dr. Breck Walker. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Happy and holidays almost. Yes, uh, it's uh, ho, ho, ho season. Um, I'm glad we were able to uh, find, uh, find some uh, Santa hats for our, our crew here. Well, I even uh, got a coffee cup in the mail. Thank you very much. You're welcome. That was uh, from your, your winning performance in um, debate uh, watch bingo. Oh, <laughs> oh. Do, do you remember that? You, you uh, I do, you, yes. You did very well that evening uh, at uh, the October 22nd <laughs> Belmont debate. We played debate watch bingo and uh, the, uh, the first three uh, place uh, holders. I don't think anybody got a bingo, but uh, you were awarded for the most, uh, most squares, but that was, that was a lot of fun. Uh, speaking of a lot of fun on the 29th, we're going to be doing uh, Global Trivia Night. So look Ooh. for that on uh, on the calendar. I know you're a trivia guy, um, Dick. So we're got a lot of trivia up there. It's just floating around. Well, it there's an advantage of trivia contest to have a, a life long lived. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, great to be with you guys today for what will be the uh, the last Global News Review of 2020. We uh, we will. Uh, uh, let's sail into the horizon the, this uh, year that uh, most folks probably uh, didn't expect to turn out quite the way it did. Um, and then we will be uh, back on January 6th, I believe it is, Wednesday afternoon, first Wednesday in January, and that will be on the calendar. So this, this is the year um, uh, that I actually drove less miles than what I reported to my insurance company. <laughs> Usually, you know, they, they ask you, how many miles do you drive? Well, I, I don't tell them that I drive 87,000 miles a year, typically. We do a lot of road trips here. Are, are you not a, a USAA guy? I, I, I won't identify my insurance company because this, this will uh, <laughs> okay. further, further embarrass me. Um, I don't know if, uh, if you, you all saw yet the uh, program we did last night with Carl Dean, uh, Global National with Carl Dean. He talked with Kate Burke, the chief operating officer at Alliance Bernstein, the, uh, the large uh, international uh, management uh, firm uh, that has moved to uh, uh, Nashville in, in recent uh, years. They're occupying a new space on Fifth and Broadway. And we had a, a great uh, conversation about the jobs that uh, AB was creating in Nashville, uh, what they're bringing to the city in terms of their support for community organizations, uh, et cetera. So when, uh, when you get a chance, take a look at that on our archive at uh, youtube.com slash TNWAC, that's Global Nashville with Carl Dean, the uh, December 8th edition, um, and uh, a, a terrific program. Um, anything else that, that you guys wanna mention at the top of the show before we get into our uh, question of the week with Breck? No. No, not me. <clears throat> Okay. You can just throw something in about Venezuela if you want to. Maduro <laughs> seems to be uh, tightening his his screws there, and uh, Guaido is gone. So well, he's he's gone, not gone or forgotten. He's still there, but he's no longer the head of the National Assembly. Sunday yeah. there was an election, which means he can't claim to be president anymore either. Um, well, I suppose retroactively, you know, he. I I don't know. It, it, well, I think he got the job as you know as, as acting president, and a whole bunch of countries, including the United States, recognized him right. as that. 
but that was because he was president of the National Assembly. So and do you now, continue to be acting president if you were named president or? I don't think so, but I'm not sure. I guess it all depends on what uh, Mike Pompeo has to say. <laughs> I don't think so. I think it depends on what Mr. Maduro does. <laughs> Uh, well, he, we know what he said uh, initially, but let's uh, let's get uh, into our program here. Breck, uh, over to you. Okay, thanks, Pat. Uh, the U.S. Institute of Peace question of the week. Now, Pat, I was hoping this might have a holiday theme, but it doesn't. Uh, uh, but the question is, with news of a breakthrough in Afghan peace talks, the United States Institute of Peace's Scott Smith warns that future troop withdrawals should be based on this approach, because if the Taliban believe withdrawal is inevitable, they have no incentive to compromise. And I won't uh, take the time to go through A, B, C, D. They're up there on the screen, and we will uh, give you the right answer at the end of the program. Thanks, Pat. Okay, we'll give folks another second to uh, let their eyes wander over that and see what they think about uh, the Afghan peace talks, which, um, are entering a, a delicate phase as we come to the end of the Trump administration. Um, Dick, I think uh, over to you here in a second to uh, to talk about our topics of the week. Uh, okay. We, Do you want me to just uh, name them, or are you going to put the screen up? No, go ahead and uh, and start. And well, we're gonna we're gonna continue what we did last uh, last week about 2021 and sort of what's in store for America and the world. So we'll talk about that, and then uh, Iran and maximum pressure at the barrel of a gun. So there have been some major developments there with the assassination of one of the top nuclear scientists in Iran. And what's Iran going to do to respond to that? So we'll talk about that. And then finally, Brexit, uh, disorderly conduct. I think as we speak, the Prime Minister of the UK may be in on the mainland of Europe to talking to the European Union people about Brexit and what's going to happen. And nobody that I know of is optimistic. Uh, yes. I don't think there's going to be any winners in that, but we'll, we'll look forward to that topic uh, uh, further down in the, in the broadcast here. So let's uh, let's start out with uh, the continuation, part two of of uh, President-elect uh, Biden uh, and the world. And we kicked this off last week uh, with our special guest, Ambassador John Kornblum, uh, who who gave us uh, the laydown of the U.S.-European relationship, and he also. Um, from his 20-year uh, friendship with uh, Secretary of State nominee uh, Tony Blinken uh, gave us uh, some insights into uh, Secretary of State Blinken's um, likely approach to his duties as uh, the next Secretary of State. Uh, today, we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, nomination of General uh, Lloyd Austin. And mere moments ago, um, Dick, I, I know you appreciate our technical skill here of getting this picture um, launched from, from TV onto our program today. But uh, just about 20 minutes ago, uh, Mr. Biden announced General Lloyd Austin as his nominee for the, the position of uh, Defense Secretary. And um, 
I, I think this has been kicked around in the news for a couple of days. And most people know that uh, General Austin is a retired U.S. Army four-star. Uh, he was the commander of U.S. Central Command and held other distinguished posts in the military. Uh, if, uh, if approved for the position, he would be the first African-American Secretary of Defense. His, uh, his nomination will require that um, the, uh, the Congress approve a waiver of a law that uh, stipulates that former military officers need to have a seven-year gap in their service before they could be considered as Secretary of Defense. And this, uh, this has been approved twice in the past, once with uh, General George C. Marshall back in uh, the, <laughs> the uh, post-World War II era, uh, when the Secretary Marshall went on uh, to uh, have quite a successful tour as the Secretary of State. Um, and uh, four years ago, when President Trump nominated uh, General Battis uh, to be the Secretary of Defense. And this is this would be the third occasion where that uh, waiver was approved. It formerly was a 10-year uh, gap that was required and it was changed to seven. So the number is, is arbitrary. Uh, the thinking is um, that it's, it's not, it may not be a, a wise choice to have a military officer who's close to his tenure in, on active duty to, uh, to be in that position, but apparently uh, the, uh, the president-elect is willing to uh, put uh, General Austin uh, up as his nominee. Uh, from everything everybody says, uh, General Austin is highly regarded uh, for his service in the military. Um, I heard him speak, I think it was about six or seven years ago at a conference, uh, quite a uh, uh, distinguished uh, leader, uh, a great uh, service record in combat and uh, in positions like uh, the end of Operation Iraqi Freedom, uh, where he uh, was responsible for the drawdown of American troops in Iraq in 2011. And that's where uh, uh, President-elect Biden came across uh, General Austin uh, and then got to know him over time as the general also headed the initial response to ISIS uh, in Iraq. Uh, so this is this is going to be uh, an interesting uh, nomination. Um, the uh, the general uh, beat out the who who had been an odds-on favorite, uh, Michelle Flournoy, who is uh, a career professional uh, working uh, in and out of uh, the Pentagon, uh, highly respected uh, as well, and very knowledgeable about uh, all the ins and outs of uh, management at the Pentagon. Held senior uh, leadership positions in the Pentagon. And, and a lot of people were thinking that, uh, that uh, Ms. Flournoy uh, was going to be the pick. But uh, General Austin, who uh, apparently has a, a, a closer uh, trusted relationship with uh, President uh, Biden, uh, was the pick. Uh, so gentlemen, we, we have uh, uh, a highly qualified uh, uh, Secretary of Defense. And, and I'd, I'd just like to share a couple of things that uh, uh, President-elect Biden had to say about, uh, about the general. In, in an article that was published yesterday in The Atlantic uh, with the, uh, the title, Why I Chose um, the, the, uh, the New Secretary of Defense nominee, um, the, uh, the president-elect said that, uh, above all, I chose Lloyd Austin as my nominee 
the Secretary of Defense because I know how he reacts under pressure, and I know that he will do whatever it takes to defend the American people. When the Islamic State emerges as a terrorist threat in Iraq and Syria, endangering the security of America's people and allies, President Obama and I turned to Austin, who then led U.S. Central Command. He designed and executed a campaign that ultimately beat back ISIS, helping to build a coalition of partners and allies from more than 70 countries who work together to overcome a, a common enemy. Uh, clearly, the, the President-elect sees in General Austin uh, somebody who's not just a military leader but uh, understands the world of diplomacy. Um, Mr. Biden concluded that article with uh, Lloyd Austin as part of our diverse national security leadership team that reflects the lived experiences of all Americans will be an essential part of this work. He shares my profound belief that the United States is strongest when we lead not only with the example of power, but with the power of our example. And that last uh, slogan there seems to be a, a popular uh, repose for the Biden administration. I've heard a number of their nominees uh, use those words. So uh, here we have a, a distinguished uh, military leader who's going to run the Pentagon. If he gets uh, approval to have the waiver granted, and then uh, the actual nomination uh, voted for. And I, I heard uh, Senator Tammy Duckworth this morning on TV say that she was against waivers for just on principle uh, for officers to become Secretary of Defense, but she was going to vote for him as the nominee. So she's gonna vote against the waiver, but vote for him uh, once he gets past the, the waiver. She said that uh, she thought there would be enough Democrats voting for him, uh, for the waiver, that uh, he would get an ultimate vote on whether to be uh, SecDef or not. Uh, it's interesting that when Mattis was up last time, he got 17 Democratic votes against the waiver. Uh, so um, I'll, I'll uh, turn to you guys to see where you come down on this uh, military officers uh, going into the position of Secretary of Defense. Um, Secretary, Senator Duckworth said uh, it's not appropriate uh, to leave the, uh, the military and, and become a civilian leader. And, and she posited that there might be a general who hung up his uniform, his or her uniform on one day and immediately moved into the SecDef spot using the, uh, the, the analogy of South American military juntas. Um, <laughs> Well, let me ask you, Pat. What do you think? I mean, we've, we've, you know, the tradition has been that it's civilian control of the military, and if right. you're having military individuals who are sort of rotated in and out of that job, but um, Mattis having had it, and now we're going to have another individual just out of the military. So the the idea of having a long break between your active service and then some kind of civilian service makes a lot of sense to me. Now, you know, seven years is that a magic number? I don't know. Probably 10 years would be better, but most of those guys who are four stars are probably in their late 50s uh, when they're when they retire. So they have some years of service that, that they can still render to the country. Yeah. Breck, what do you think? Well, Pat, the, the pick is really interesting to me because, as you pointed out with Tammy Duckworth and certainly plenty of others, it's a little bit of a controversial pick, not in terms of who General Austin is, but the fact that, again, he needs a waiver. And, you know, progressives within the Democratic Party are un unhappy with that nomination I've read uh, because, among other things, General Austin, since he left the service, has 
served on the board of Raytheon, which is a major uh, defense contractor, and also has been involved with a uh, private equity group that is uh, busily buying up uh, smaller defense companies as an investment uh, opportunity. And he's made quite a bit of money, I think, uh, with these relationships. And that's certainly the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. They've raised some complaints about that. Uh, and as well, the uh, uh, as you mentioned, there are several Democrats and Republicans that on principle uh, don't like the idea of a third waiver uh, in, in a historical sense. I mean, it's a rare, rare thing to do. And it's just interesting that uh, to me that Biden didn't find a way that was going to have a little bit less controversy, although I'm sure he'll probably get approved. But there must be an incredible personal relationship between those two for Biden to uh, take this risk, in my mind. Yeah, well, you raise a couple of great points there, Brick. And I think the question of uh, defense contractor relationships with the Pentagon um, is, is also a, a lightning rod for a lot of these nominations. There were people who were uh, predicting that uh, Michelle Flournoy would run into some obstacles in her nomination because uh, she's gone from government service to uh, working in industry. And I don't suppose that there's anybody who's spent five or six years uh, fishing on, uh, on Walden Pond or somewhere who, who just emerges uh, unscathed by connections to either active duty military service or, uh, or the defense contracting uh, production industry. And I, it also raises the question, do you want somebody who doesn't have those kinds of experiences? Oh, good point. Good points. And as far as the, uh, the connection with President Biden, uh, I heard a report uh, the other day that uh, when, they, when Biden and Austin first met, it was in Kirkuk, Iraq, when uh, the general was uh, responsible for that theater of operations and, and Vice President Biden was, uh, was visiting. And as an aside in their meeting, um, General Austin asked uh, President-elect uh, Biden how his son Beau was doing. And uh, that started a conversation that over time led to uh, a close relationship and, and the, the building of trust and confidence um, for General Austin by, uh, by the Vice President-elect. I think one of the things you see in, in uh, President-elect Biden's choices is a personal relationship with most of these folks. Uh, that he's known them, he's trusted them. I just got uh, my Foreign Service Journal magazine and the article is George Schultz on trust. So trust to me is, is, a, is a very high valued thing for the president-elect. And he knows these people and he's worked with them and I think they're gonna hit the ground running. But you know what Mitch McConnell will try to do or not do in the Senate is always up for grabs. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we well, had I, just... a, um, uh, I came across a clip this morning from our sister World Affairs Council in Connecticut. Uh, they named him, uh, General Austin is the, the luminary award winner of 2020. And they had a, uh, a vignette of him speaking on the question of character. We will post that link with the, uh, this uh, edition of the Global News Review so people can take a look at that. He was speaking on the question of character and talking about uh, leadership and, and character and how important character was to uh, being an effective leader. Uh, so we'll, uh, we'll have that link on, 
on the archive version of, of this news review. I didn't want to play the whole thing and, and uh, run us out of time here. Uh, any, any other thoughts on, uh, Brett, go ahead. Pat, I want to add just one other thing, and I defer to you and the ambassador since you've been in government uh, or in the military on this, but it does seem to me that as an outsider looking in that uh, the Secretary of Defense you know, has a significant management role, they have a significant policy role on defense matters, but they also have, uh, in many instances, a significant political role. And uh, the one thing that General Austin, and there's certainly other people commenting on this, uh, in the past, he has been a person who has, uh, I think, not taken on uh, a, uh, or not, uh, not enjoyed at least, a political role like people like General Petraeus did and so forth in the past. And, and uh, maybe that is part of what Biden wants is somebody who is not going to uh, be concerned about uh, garnering the limelight and pushing his own personal uh, uh, agenda forward and so forth. But uh, uh, General Austin does not come with the political bona fides that you often see in Secretary of Defense nominees. Well, it, I, I would uh, add the observation that in my last uh, tour of duty in the, the military was at US Central Command, the, the same command Austin had in the 2010-2011 uh, era. I was uh, a few years earlier than that. And we had a fellow named General Anthony Zinni as our, our, then they used to call him Commander-in-Chief of Central Command. Now they call him Commander. Apparently the Bush administration didn't like military officers being called Commanders-in-Chief. Um, but anyway, there was an, an article, uh, uh, Dana Priest from the Washington Post followed General Zinni around on one of his trips to uh, the region and CENTCOM comprises uh, 21, 23 countries uh, from the Horn of Africa across the Arabian Peninsula into Southwest Asia. And General Zinni was, uh, was a, a terrific uh, representative uh, of the United States across that region, not just because he commanded the military forces that America had in the area, but he was also uh, somewhat of a diplomat um, when he arrived on scene, he would often outshine the local ambassador, which uh, Dick, that, that probably did ruffle some feathers uh, in, in capitals when, uh, when the general would- I think most ambassadors realize that when you were a four-star and you're a commander-in-chief or commander of a particular military command, uh, you have goodies that you can use to reward other people. Right. Uh, and the State Department really doesn't have many little Chotkeys to hand out, whereas <laughs> uh, the Pentagon has millions and thousands of millions of these things. So it, it makes a difference. You mean F 16s are more important than key rings? Uh, that's right. Or Twinkies or a cup of coffee or a, you know, a bottle of scotch or something. I mean, you know, yeah. So uh, I think, uh, Breck, to your point, uh, it, it, they may lack uh, what they lack in. Uh, political uh, experience in, in Washington, dealing with the Congress and so forth. Well, I actually, uh, commanders, regional commanders, unified commanders, they're called, uh, appear uh, regularly before Congress and they deal with uh, congressional uh, inquiries and visits and so forth. So they do have some, some political uh, acumen, uh, but uh, clearly in the world of diplomacy, they, they stand out probably more so than people who come up through the ranks in the Pentagon. Yeah. Um, Okay, so we'll see how that goes. It, it could be, uh, I don't think it's gonna be contentious. I think, uh, you know, most, most Congresses allow the, uh, the president to have the people that he, he chooses to have. And other than the waiver requirement, uh, 
General Lloyd Austin appears to be a distinguished uh, individual who probably will do well in the Pentagon. And, and clearly the Pentagon is, has got some things going on and, and we'll just reflect back on a slide that we had last week talking about the installation of, um, of loyalists uh, from the Trump administration into positions in the Pentagon. Mark Esper was fired and uh, in the position of uh, acting secretary of defense and more importantly, or equally as important, uh, the installation of some uh, Trump loyalists into policy um, positions in the Pentagon. And, and we'll see how that plays out in the remaining, uh, what is it, 40 days, 32 days, something like that of the uh, Trump administration. So there's uh, still a lot, of, a lot of things going on in the Pentagon that uh, people need to be aware of. And, and we'll see how that plays out and, and how the uh, the Biden administration uh, moves into the Pentagon and, and other um, national security areas. And we've, we've talked previously, and, and people can refer back in the archives for uh, previous Global News Reviews, we talked about the national security team, uh, uh, Secretary nominee Blinken, uh, the UN ambassador nominee, national security advisor, etc. So um, a lot of interesting things happening, and we will continue to track those uh, for, uh, for our folks. Uh, Breck, let's uh, move into, uh, into a new topic on uh, what's going on with, uh, with Iran, and uh, uh, why don't you bring us up to date? Okay, thanks, Pat and uh, Dick. So on November 27th, uh, perhaps the key scientist involved in Iran's nuclear program uh, was assassinated. Uh, Fakhri Zadeh, Musan Fakhri Zadeh was shot dead in the city of Absard, which is 50 miles to the east of Tehran. And he's the fifth nuclear scientist, Iranian nuclear scientist killed in the last decade. There were four others killed. Uh, assassinated in uh, the years 2010 to 2012. Now, Iran, and I think most of the rest of the world think that this is the work of the Israelis. And the question comes up, uh, in my mind at least, and, and a lot of other people's uh, commentators' minds, uh, why now? Why do this now? And uh, it's certainly true that in the last uh, month that Iran, in response to U.S. sanctions, uh, has recently increased its production of enriched uranium and has resumed testing of advanced uh, centrifuges in violation of the JCPOA. Now, just quickly, the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, that's an agreement that was entered into uh, back in July of 2015 between Iran, the five permanent members of the United Nations Security Council, which includes uh, China, the United States, and Russia, uh, Germany, and the EU. They all entered into an agreement where Iran agreed uh, to curtail its uranium enrichment and allowed international monitoring of its nuclear program in exchange for the lifting of economic sanctions. And uh, that, that uh, agreement was fostered uh, under the Obama administration. And in 2018, in July 2018, President Trump uh, pulled out of that agreement. Uh, and in response, as I said in the last month, uh, Iran is now uh, in violation of uh, that agreement itself. But so why kill this scientist now? Well, it possibly has something to do with the upcoming Biden administration coming into office, because Biden has said that he will uh, probably rejoin the JCPOA. Uh, 
whoever did foment, whoever did uh, uh, undertake the assassination, maybe they did so in hopes of upsetting any move by Biden and the Ar Iranians coming back uh, together. Or if it was the Israelis, uh, maybe they thought that it was the last time that they could act with US uh, acquiescence to uh, an assassination like that. Or maybe the perpetrators wanted to give the hardliners in Iran a boost, a political boost, in hopes of provoking a military solution to the nuclear problem, which uh, these hardliners would, uh, uh, would prefer. And hardliners right now are definitely in the ascendancy in Iran in a political sense. Recent parliamentary elections, hardliners that uh, are opposed to the JCPOA uh, uh, gained uh, several seats and I think now occupy a majority in the uh, Iranian parliament. But uh, uh, in any event, this assassination may also be part of a growing covert war against Iran. Over the summer, you may recall, there were two explosions that destroyed buildings involved with Iranian nuclear research. On August the 7th, there was an Al-Qaeda leader who was shot dead in Tehran, presumably by uh, Israelis, although perhaps with uh, American support. And of course, last January, the U.S. took out General Soleimani, who was a senior general in the Revolutionary uh, Guards. Uh, now, not all Americans think that this was a good thing to, to, uh, to, to uh, see happen. Uh, John Brennan, CIA head uh, under, in the Obama administration from 2013 to 17, he said, quote, that this was a criminal act of state-sponsored terrorism. Uh, if passed as prologue, a violent Iranian response could be expected, but, and President Rouhani has promised retribution, but the Iranians may not want to create an issue until they see what Biden is going to do. Uh, they wouldn't want to do anything necessarily that might cause him to change his mind or make it more politically difficult for him to rejoin the JCPOA. Uh, so, Pat, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens between now and January 20th. Uh, between Iran and the United States and Israel, and it certainly will be interesting to see what happens after the Biden administration uh, comes into power. Uh, great, uh, great re report, Rick. Uh, I'm, I'm left to wonder, Iran in, in normal times uh, might be uh, in the position of striking back after these provocations, uh, but uh, I suspect there's cooler heads prevailing in Tehran waiting to see the Trump administration uh, ushered out and, and wait to find out what they can get out of the uh, Biden administration, especially since Biden is uh, leaning towards resumption of the JCPOA. Although uh, I read that uh, the position of the Biden administration is that Iran will have to return to the conditions set by the JCPOA and they've been in the, they've been producing Missile material in excess of what the JCPOA limits have been. So it's not just going to be uh, January 21st. Uh, we meet in Geneva and, and resign. Um, and there's really nothing to resign with. The U U.S. just needs to announce, yes, we're returning to the JCPOA uh, because it's still. But, we want something more out of uh, out of the Iranians, and the Iranians want something more out of us. In particular, they want the sanctions lifted. So it's not just the JCPOA, it's the Iranians want to have the ability to sell their oil again like they used to, uh, engage in international commerce and help boost their economy, which has been in free fall for quite some time. And the idea that, you know, they know that Trump's not going to do anything about that. 
during in, right. in his final days. But the idea of being a measured, showing a little bit of restraint may help the Biden administration to be more forthcoming and and dealing with the issues the Iranians want. But still on January 21st, it's, it's not simply saying we're back in. Uh, as you said, uh, the Iranians want uh, sanctions relief, a return to the uh, level of sanctions that uh, were enforced with the JCPOA uh, and, and the, uh, the quid pro quo for Iran in the JCPOA was sanctions relief initially uh, and the return of uh, frozen assets. And that got a lot of play uh, um, from the Trump administration of basket loads of dollars back in the back of airplanes getting taken back to it that we were giving to Iran. And it was Iran's money to begin with. Yeah. But um, uh, Iran wants uh, a return to the sanctions levels. Uh, the United States wants uh, Iran to return to the level of fissile material. And this would probably involve removing the highly enriched uranium that they produced in excess of their limits to a third country. So there's a lot of moving parts here. Uh, well, there's another aspect, Pat, that, that the you know, JCPOA, was gonna, when it was originally put in, was going to expire down the road. Right. And I would imagine that uh, the, if the Biden administration wants to do something on that, they're going to say, well, we, we need to kick this down the road a little more. We're going to add another five years or 10 years to the efficacy of the agreement. Right. And, but just to get back to it, there's, there's also the claim uh, or the demand on the Iranian side that they not only want to return to the uh, conditions that were prevalent when the JCPOA was uh, in effect and the Trump administration left, they want reparations for the damages that have been done to the Iranian economy by virtue of Trump leaving the JCPOA. So there's another wrinkle in it, just to get yeah. back to the basic conditions. But you're right, Dick. Uh, both sides uh, want something more than just the uh, JCPOA as it existed. The United States wants to open up uh, negotiations that will include Iranian uh, conduct in the region, uh, things like support for Hezbollah, uh, the Houthis in, in Yemen, uh, and so forth, missile technology, uh, all of the things that uh, were kind of a dig on the, the JCPOA as not having done enough in terms of our the issues that we have with with Iran, so this uh, this is a complicated area. The Biden yeah. administration, obviously, you know, if you look on its website for the top issues that it's looking at, the pandemic is number one, economic recovery, uh, social justice uh, initiatives, climate change, etc. So renegotiating the JCPOA with Iran is not job one on uh, on day one for the Biden administration. And if I just throw, throw something out, uh, Farid Zakari is one of my, my favorite guys, and he has a, a program on the weekends. And last Sunday, uh, he had a panel that included an individual, an Israeli, who talked about, you know, as if, yes, the Israelis have done this, and here's what they did. And his story was that he, they uh, parked a car near where the scientist was going to be, and that car had an automatic machine gun that can be remotely controlled and basically sprayed the scientist's car with, with uh, bullets and then blew itself up. So there was not supposed to be much evidence left. So that, you know, the Israelis have a interesting way of doing things. They've, they've been just... known, known for some creativity in, uh, in dealing with such matters. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, Pat, I just want to add one thing about the, since we're talking about, about the JCPOA, I mean, when we entered into that agreement under the Obama administration, it was very controversial. When Trump pulled out in uh, 2018, it was uh, pretty, pretty controversial. The, um, and it's interesting to me that the policy divide in the United States is pretty partisan. Republicans want to take a harder line and Democrats uh, like the idea of giving the Iranians a chance to live up to their obligations under the JCPOA, which they seem to be doing uh, prior to the time that uh, that we pulled out. But it seems to me that the U.S. has three objectives with Iran in the Middle East. I mean, Iran is they're building nukes and we'd rather not them not have nukes. They are fomenting terrorism in the region and throughout the world, and we'd rather them not do that. And they are also working to destabilize uh, Sunni regimes in the Middle East that are allies of ours, and we would prefer not to see those regimes uh, destabilized. And uh, uh, these policy disagreements seems to me that there are reasonable arguments on both sides of the argument as to what to do here. And uh, it's a shame that it becomes a political issue as opposed to uh, you know, a foreign policy debate that uh, looks at what, what our objectives need to be and what our policy should be to achieve those objectives. And it's not a right or wrong situation. It's, uh, in my mind, what works best. And we don't see that happening in the public debates on foreign policy in so many areas. Right. I, I guess I would just say that uh, a bipartisan approach might be, as you suggest, to see what, what works. And if you look at the JCPOA, it in effect uh, stopped in its tracks the Iranian nuclear program. They, they filled in with cement, a reactor that was producing plutonium. Uh, they exported, uh, moved out of the country, the uh, highly enriched uranium that, uh, that they had in stockpile. And they limited the uh, production of uh, enriched uranium in the centrifuges. And they installed uh, extremely strict monitoring by the International Atomic Energy Agency, which really kept tabs on what was going on in the nuclear industry there. So um, then in 2018, the JCPOA went away and uh, they started to, to sign <clears throat> the inspections, uh, enriched uranium production went up. The hardliners were driven, as you mentioned, into ascendancy. Um, and the maximum pressure campaign of Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, the, the 12 points of things he demanded before we would provide any sort of conversation about uh, the JCPOA or any follow-on negotiations has, has been an abject failure. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I agree it's a partisan issue, but if you look at uh, what, what uh, achieved results and what didn't, I would uh, look at having a conversation uh, with, uh, with Iran on these issues and, and getting back to some statecraft rather than uh, maximum pressure and bluster. It's, it's a powder keg over there and I don't wanna see um, a bad result. Good point. All right, gentlemen, let's uh, march on here. We, uh, we have one more topic and it is uh, <laughs> a, a slippery one that we've, we've been sort of covering. Um, it seems like uh, the, the dawn of time and that's uh, Brexit um, and, uh, and what's going on in England, uh, England uh, the, U the UK and uh, our, our friends in the European uh, Union. And the news is, is breaking as, as we have uh, this conversation. So 
uh, I think if, if we just uh, bring people up to date on uh, what Brexit is and uh, where we got here. I woke up this morning and, and read my Economist um, uh, early morning uh, newsletter and it said that uh, Britain and the European Union reached an agreement in principle over the implementation of the Northern Ireland pr protocols set out in the Brexit withdrawal treaty. And I was thinking, wow, this is uh, great news. We, we've got some, uh, some breakthrough. And, and for people who aren't following this, uh, like the news nerds that, that we are, um, December 31st is the end of the implementation period uh, for Brexit. You may recall that on January 31st, 2020, um, Brexit was put in place, but there was an extension of 11 months for uh, the UK and the EU to, uh, to work out a treaty on how all this was gonna work out. And as, uh, as you may uh, know, uh, Brexit, um, and, and uh, Breck, uh, you probably like this word, portmanteau of the words uh, Britain and exit. So they, they come up with Brexit. I like that portmanteau. I'll have to uh, use that more often. We, we discovered jiggery pokery a couple of weeks ago. So now <laughs> we're, we're improving our, uh, our uh, vocabulary here. And uh, just the background on this, the, uh, the British joined the European Union back in the 1970s. And, uh, the, uh, and that was the European Economic Community, which was the precursor of the EU. And then over, over the decades, the EU expanded uh, the scope and powers um, and that became increasingly controversial in, uh, in Britain. So about, uh, I guess, 10, 15 years ago, an effort arose uh, to reduce the dependency of uh, Britain on the central government of the European Union, which uh, legislated all sorts of uh, rules and regulations. Uh, Britain remained a, um, uh, out of the Eurozone, so they didn't participate in the currency with the European Union, but they were involved as a member of the uh, European Union in the governance uh, from, uh, from Brussels. And uh, you can see the, uh, the layout of uh, the European Union countries um, besides the United Kingdom. And the United Kingdom consists of Wales, England, Scotland, and Northern Ireland. Um, so uh, on the right uh, there, you can see the, uh, the vote by uh, uh, UK citizens on leaving or remaining. And that was a, a referendum a couple of years ago in which um, uh, the British were able to uh, put to rest the, the question of uh, remaining in the European Union or departing. And uh, the, uh, the United Kingdom Independence Party or UKIP was uh, siphoning off the support of the Conservative Party. So David Cameron, in uh, 2015, uh, prior to uh, uh, moving on to a second term, was concerned about the divisions over the EU. So he called for a referendum. And uh, uh, on June 23rd, 2016, uh, that was the, the result. The, uh, the uh, exiters, uh, the leavers uh, won the day. And you can see that uh, the breakout of vote um, broke down to, to cosmopolitan versus uh, rural parts of, of the country. And there were a number of um, volatile issues. One of them was the, the free borders, uh, the open borders. Uh, uh, the British were concerned about uh, Eastern Europeans coming in and taking jobs from uh, uh, the English. Uh, that was a hot button issue. Uh, 
there was talk about uh, the impact on the National Health Service uh, and other things. So uh, in, in what uh, wound up being a surprise to those who called for the, the referendum, uh, the remainers um, lost and, uh, and the leavers, uh, those voting to leave or to exit the uh, European Union uh, won. And, and since the, uh, the referendum, there's, there's been a lot of uh, political maneuvering. Uh, there have been two prime ministers who have come and gone. Theresa May followed David Cameron, and then uh, Boris Johnson uh, took over after Theresa May. And uh, Prime Minister May uh, spent a lot of political capital and a lot of uh, shoe leather back and forth to, uh, to Brussels, um, trying to uh, hammer out a post-Brexit um, uh, deal with the European Union. And here we are uh, just weeks away from the implementation of an agreement or no agreement, which will cause increasing chaos. Um, and we have, uh, we have no deal at this point. So the, the conversations, the negotiations are continuing. There's uh, uh, a couple of thorny issues. One of them is the Irish border. And uh, the issue there is, uh, as you can see um, in, the, in the, uh, the map there, Northern Ireland is uh, part of the island of Ireland. The Republic of Ireland is in the south and uh, Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK, is to the north. So if, uh, if the UK leaves the European Union, which Ireland is part of, uh, they would have to institute a, uh, a hard border between uh, the north and um, uh, the Republic of Ireland. And, and the picture on the left there is what the current border looks like uh, between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Uh, so if you have a truckload of uh, uh, products, you can just drive down the road and you're in the Republic of Ireland or vice versa. And the picture on the right is uh, the, the customs barrier uh, on the island, on the isle, uh, excuse me, the peninsula of uh, Gibraltar. It's a peninsula off the coast of Spain. And Gibraltar is a British ter territory. Um, so you can see the difference between uh, a customs border and um, uh, the free access that uh, the Irish uh, in the South and North have enjoyed since the Good Friday Agreement, uh, and they don't want to see a return to a hard border. The problem uh, from London's perspective is they will be outside of the European Union's uh, economic zone, so there needs to be a customs border somewhere, and, and the proposal, the, the backstop proposal uh, of Brexit was to have uh, customs union, uh, customs imposed for anything crossing the, the Irish Sea um, to uh, the, uh, the British Isles, the uh, Great Britain. Um, and there was some resistance in the Boris Johnson administration. So that, uh, that is one question that uh, is, has gone unanswered. Uh, another contentious issue that um, uh, is holding up negotiations, believe it or not, are fishing agreements. Uh, apparently the French fishermen, they get a lot of their catch in British waters, and they, uh, they don't want to be excluded from British waters uh, as a result of Brexit. So there's uh, anxiety in uh, France, and this isn't a major market, but uh, like a lot of agricultural products that hold up trade negotiations, uh, you know, farmers uh, beat up their politicians, and I suppose the fishermen are beating up uh, the central government of Paris because uh, Mr. Macron is uh, against any agreement in which the fishermen would not be able to continue to fish in the waters that they currently do. 
So this, this is really um, an unbelievably difficult issue between uh, former uh, partners in the European Union to sort this all out before the deadline, 31 December 2020. Uh, Ambassador, you're, you're skilled in the arts of diplomacy and negotiation. Uh, this is, escapes me as why here we are years, years later, uh, weeks away, and we're still fishing around for a deal. Yeah, I, I don't see that there's going to be a deal, frankly, Pat. And, and you know, part of the deal that, that the uh, Brits have put forward is, is illegal, and the, the agreements that they currently have. So I don't know where they're going to go. My sense is that uh, it could impact the government of the United Kingdom. And maybe Boris Johnson's going to have to go the way of previous prime ministers who have been unable to negotiate this particular problem with, with success. Yeah. Uh, well, there was a, a partial withdrawal agreement. And as you mentioned, it, that if they backtrack on it, it would be a violation of international law. So uh, there's that. And, and there's also the question of uh, COVID. Uh, the economy of all these countries, uh, especially uh, the UK, has been rocked by uh, the pandemic. Uh, mm -hmm. And there's talk that if uh, there's no deal on January 1st, there will be thousands and thousands of trucks lined up trying to get uh, from uh, the European continent to uh, to the United Kingdom and back and forth because there'll be no standards for customs or exchange. Um, it's, it's just phenomenally uh, <laughs> frustrating. Yes. Pat, Pat, I wanted to bring in a, a little etymology if I could. Uh, this is interesting to me about Brexit. You mentioned this, but you know, after Watergate in the US, every corruption scandal became something gate. Yeah. Now I'm wondering if Britain, in Britain, because uh, we had Brexit and now we have Megxit when uh, Harry and Meghan leave. And I just wonder now that anytime anybody leaves office or leaves Britain or whatever happens, it's going to be like a Watergate situation over there. It's going to end with, you know, if, if uh, Boris Johnson has to leave, it's going to be Borzit and uh, all that kind of stuff. It'll be interesting to see. Well, you know, his nickname is Bojo, so we'll have to work on <laughs> Something like that. So, so do we have a Trump, Trump exit coming up? Yeah, Don's I it. hope so. Forty-two <laughs> days, right? We'll we'll see how that goes. So uh, we'll stay tuned on on Brexit. Uh, it's it's going to happen in uh, in just uh, a couple of weeks. Um, God save the Queen. <laughs> She can't save Brexit, so I don't know. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, you know, Netflix won't even put a little thing on its TV screen that says the crown is an, a, a you know, fictitious adaptation of what's going on. Because evidently the prince really uh, is a much nicer guy than he's made to appear in the, in the series of the crown. So. Yeah, that's, that's a whole other thing, the royal family. Um... <laughs> It's been a rough year all around. Yeah. Well, all right, gentlemen. Uh, any last co comments on the, our topics today before we jump into uh, the answer to our infamous uh, question of the week? Breck, take it away. Okay. Well, uh, again, uh, the uh, the question was uh, with news of a breakthrough in Afghan peace talks. Uh, 
USIP Scott Smith warned that future troop withdrawal should be based on this approach. And that approach, the answer to that is uh, A, that approach is to switch from a time-based deadline approach to a conditions-based approach, because otherwise he's obviously arguing the the Afghan, the, uh, the Taliban have no reason to uh, negotiate in any serious way. So uh, the answer is A. All right, and uh, we encourage people to uh, get involved with our uh, weekly uh, quiz. You can uh, sign up for that at the uh, TNWAC uh, website. Um, and you My sense, Pat, is that you've got a lot more people taking the quiz these days. The, the, yeah, the numbers have gone up and, uh, you know, we were getting some feedback that the questions were too, uh, I think the word, the most commonly used word was obscure. So <laughs> um, uh, I tip my hat to Professor uh, Debbie Bernard uh, at the Tennessee Tech University. She and I split the duty on uh, the, the quiz question writing. So we, we conferred and we, we lightened up a little bit and lo and behold, uh, there were uh, a very large number of tens on the quiz. So maybe not go back to obscure, but maybe uh, turn, the, turn the, the screws down a, a notch or two. There you go. What do you think? Is it too, uh, too tough? No, I don't think so. Okay. I mean, you, know, there's some, you, you get some obscure things, for example. I, the last quiz I missed, uh, when is Netanyahu supposed to leave office? You know, when you had a true or false, is he going to stay around until November of 21, according to the agreement that he has with the other party? So, but, you know, I, that's the level of detail that I usually don't dig around in, so. Well, some, sometimes you, you might be uh, over yeah, yeah. the question. <laughs> there, there are sometimes it's uh, more obvious than it would appear. But we'll, uh, we'll work on our approach to that. And uh, uh, this being... Um, Actually, uh, before we move on, let's let's take uh, a question from uh, our uh, esteemed audience. Uh, Robert asks, why the disparity in Northern Ireland, where the Western part voted to stay in the EU and the Eastern voted to leave? Uh, that refers back to our uh, uh, our little map here, and that's uh, that's an interesting question. I I think the answer, and and I don't know a hundred percent, so I'm I'm just by conjecture, I would say that uh, the, uh, the the closeness to um, Belfast, and there was a relationship with the uh, Ulster uh, government and the the leading parties in uh, in Ulster, the, that county uh, in Northern Ireland surrounding Belfast, uh, with the uh, uh, the government. Uh, uh, leaders. So there might be some political connections uh, that the area around Belfast was more interested in, uh, in being among the leavers, um, whereas the counties to the west may have felt uh, more in affinity with the Republic of Ireland being uh, along the border, um, Donegal and, and some of those uh, areas closest to the Republic of Ireland may have felt more of an affinity to the open borders and, uh, and the prospects uh, for, uh, or, th or the damage that could be done if, if the Good Friday agreements and the open borders uh, were a problem. But that's a good question, Robert. Uh, we will uh, take that on board and join us back on January 6th for our next global news review. And we will happily uh, discuss uh, the results of that. So uh, Dick, take a note. Um, 
Brexit uh, question, Robert wants to know why the disparity and we'll, we'll get into that. But um, uh, thank you gentlemen for a fantastic year of global news reviews, uh, big hat tip uh, to you guys for providing your insights and perspectives to our friends who join us every week and watch the uh, youtube.com slash TNWAC versions of uh, all our programs. And I look forward to uh, returning uh, after the first of the year. And I would encourage all of our friends out there to become members of the World Affairs Council. That's how we pay uh, Ambassador uh, Bauer's uh, uh, tea time uh, <laughs> beverages. And, uh, Listen, I have so much time. I'm even watching uh, Belarus celebrations where their women are marching along and the anniversary of the end of the Second World War. So. Well, we'll have to find you. I shared that with you two guys, and Brick th thought it was cool. So we'll have to find you <laughs> some more hobbies, uh, uh, Mr. Ambassador. Uh, <laughs> so just a reminder: join us uh, December 29th for Global Trivia Night. Uh, I'm I'm sure at, at least Ambassador Bowers will be there, uh, vying for uh, top spot, and we will be doing that in in uh, collaboration with our friends at the New Hampshire uh, World Affairs Council and the Maine World Affairs Council. We told the main folks that they should offer a prize of a, a box of lobster, but I, I don't think we'll, we'll see how that goes. Uh, but uh, sincerely, uh, thanks to you guys for, for doing all you do to, to help the World Affairs Council bring our uh, global affairs awareness programs to our community. Uh, 2020 has been an interesting year for us to try to keep up with things, but I tip my hat to uh, the work that you guys have done here. Thanks so much. Well, Merry Christmas. A great time uh, being part of this and uh, happy holidays to you both. And here's to a better 2021. Uh, yes, sir. We'll, we will, yeah, somebody uh, sent me a Christmas card that said that his favorite Christmas card was uh, <laughs> Merry January 21st, 2021. So, Okay, well, we'll end with a, a tip of the hat here uh, and, uh, and take our leave. All Thank right. you, gentlemen. All right. See you later.